preacher in Atlanta several years ago. I don't even know if this is true, but I thought that this went along with what we're talking about today, okay? So you can all laugh and we'll get going. <laughs> so anyways, this person who wrote this noticed um, in the restaurant section of the yellow pages that there was this restaurant and it was called Church of God Grill. Very interesting name for a church. The peculiar name aroused his curiosity and he dialed the number. A man answered with a cheery, hello, Church of God Grill. The preacher answered how, the preacher asked how that restaurant had been given such an unusual name. And the man said, well, we had a little mission down here and we started selling chicken dinners after church on Sunday to help pay the bills. Well, people liked the chicken and we did such a good business that eventually we cut back on the church service. After a while, we just closed down the church altogether and kept on serving chicken dinners. We kept the name we started with, and that's Church of God Grill. So, yes, there's a problem we can all see, right? <laughs> when we become distracted, we lose sight of our most important priority. This example, of course, is a bit humorous. Thank you. I might have to figure out a way to clip this. Maybe we'll just, sorry, I might look a little weird, but maybe this will work better. Is that better? Keep it off? Okay, thank you. I appreciate that very much. <clears throat> okay, so this example is a little bit humorous and quite a bit ridiculous because probably the reality of that, at least in a short span of time, is not really reality. However, we do see these kinds of things like with colleges that start out. Uh, Harvard, right? Princeton, they started out as Christian schools and look at them now over time because why? They forgot their first priority. <clears throat> when we become distracted by any number of things, we fail to focus on the one thing that is most important. We may scoff at the idea that a church could become so intent on making chicken that they entirely lost sight of the importance of church. But the sad fact is that we all do this as well in less obvious ways. So we don't recognize it because it's us and you know, sin is deceitful and our hearts when they pair up with sin, they're deceitful. And so all this deceit leads us to believe that what we're prioritizing is actually a good thing. And what we don't realize is we begin to slip away from what is truly important. So this morning we are going to look at Luke 10, 38 through 42. So if you don't mind to turn there, I would like for you guys to follow along with me. And we're going to keep referring back to it this morning because I want you to see uh, the importance of what's going on in the comparing and contrasting. So Luke 10, starting in verse 38. And as I said earlier, this is a very familiar passage to all of us. And as you know, this is the one about Mary and Martha. And Martha always gets kind of a bad rap. But you'll see why she gets a bad rap when we study this this morning. But what we're going to see is we all oftentimes are Martha's. And we have to be very, very intentional if we are going to be Mary. So starting in verse 38. Now as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. So I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, setting here. So you'll see that on your notes, Roman numeral one is our setting. And just briefly here, kind of explain what's going on. <clears throat> so I'm actually quoting from John MacArthur. I always appreciate reading John MacArthur's commentaries because he always gives this full picture of what's going on. And if you ever listen to him preach, I love listening to him preach as well and actually listen to him a lot 
because he often references the Old Testament. He gives context for whatever it is that we're studying. And it has helped me to understand the Bible so much better. But anyways, um, he is, this is a quote from him regarding this passage. He says this, this story sets the stage for the last phase of Jesus' ministry. That period between the end of his Galilean ministry and then his triumphal entry into Jerusalem found the Lord traveling extensively in Judea and occasionally east of the Jordan River. His primary emphasis during that journey was not on performing miracle, miraculous signs, but on teaching his disciples. See, you remember in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what was he doing so much of? Miracles after miracles. And what did the people end up want, wanting? They wanted the miracles. They didn't want Jesus. So now Jesus has transi transitioned. And if I remember correctly, I think this is approximately the last six months of his ministry. That's what's kind of, this is the marker for that. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a horrible frog in my throat this morning. It is important to note that both Mary and Martha love Jesus. And I think that's really important for all of us to think about this morning as we talk about Mary and Martha, because Mary is the one that was worshiping at the feet of Jesus, and Martha was the one that was distracted from that. And yet, we are talking about two believers, two believers that loved Jesus. And even in that, Martha was still distracted, drawn away from what was most important. And that's why it's important for us to know this and see this because we can see it so much in our own hearts and in our own lives. So as we work through our passage, we need to keep in mind this fact as we extract application for our own hearts and for our own lives. <clears throat> so A, Martha's home in Bethany. So even though our text doesn't tell us this, we know Martha's home was in Bethany because the Apostle John mentioned it in his gospel. We also know that they had a brother named Lazarus. Of course, we all know the story of Lazarus. Luke does not mention these details because his purpose was to highlight Jesus' teaching. So at times he omitted certain details that weren't pertinent to understanding Jesus' message. And actually, if you look, if you read through Luke, you can actually see that he doesn't often give us some of these extra details that we might find in the other Gospels because Luke has a very specific purpose in mind. And we're going to see that right here. He wants us to understand from this text today, what was most important and what was Jesus trying to communicate? Our text seems to indicate that perhaps Jesus had not met Mary and Martha prior to this visit because Luke's introduction seems formal rather than friendly or familiar. It is believed that this was likely the first of many visits Jesus made to Martha and Mary because in John 11 verse 5, John wrote, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There is no mention um, at all of a husband that Martha had, and yet we know that this is Martha's home. So more than likely, now, okay, this is speculation. I'm getting this from commentaries. I didn't just make this up just so that you know. <laughs> but more than likely, um, well, first of all, that relationship that that Jesus had with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, obviously we know from other passages that they had a close and intimate relationship. And so likely that grew over this period of time. Well, also we don't see Martha having a husband, but this is her home. So it could be that she had a husband and he is now passed on and that's why she is the one that owns the home here. Just interesting things to think about, but it helps to, to set the setting for us so that we kind of understand more about what's going on. So B, Mary was listening to Jesus teach. Here at the outset of our passage, we are presented with an important statement that will grow in significance as we move through our passage. We see that Mary is seated at the Lord's feet and she is listening to him teach. So in verse 39, and this is why I want you to have your passage in front of you because I'm going to ask you several times to just look down, see what the, see what the passage is saying. So verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. So we get the picture. 
uh, that Jesus is in the home. He's gone to Mary's house or to Martha's house, and he is sitting there. And Martha, or goodness, do I have any idea what I'm talking about today? <laughs> so Mary is sitting at his feet. There are a couple things that are significant about this brief description. First, Mary displayed an attitude of love, interest, and devotion toward Jesus. She demonstrated an eagerness to hear his teaching by sitting at his feet, which was a common position for students listening to rabbis. So if you've done any studying, you know that this is the case. A rabbi would sit and teach, and then his disciples or his students would sit at his feet and listen to him. This setting, however, reveals a very unique situation. So this is uh, a quote from a commentator. Though this was a typical position for students of a rabbi in first century Judaism, rabbis did not take women as students. The picture of a woman in the disciples' position at the feet of Jesus would be startling in a culture where women did not receive formal teaching from a rabbi. So the fact that Mary's even sitting there is totally against the culture of the day at that time. The fact that Jesus taught Mary as a student sitting at his feet indicated his love for women and the value he placed on women knowing him and knowing his word. It also demonstrated a boldness on Mary's part to position herself at Jesus' feet to receive his teaching. She valued his words to such a degree that she willingly broke the acceptable social norms to hear his teaching. So we see on both parts the value that Jesus placed on a woman hearing his teaching and the value that she placed on hearing his teaching. Both were not commonly practiced in that, in that day. Initially, these statements just appear to be general facts in our text, right? We can just skim over it. But as we will see later, this is a highly noteworthy statement. And we're going to come back and talk about it quite a bit as we get to the end of our our message today. But in an effort to highlight what is to come, I do want you to glance down again at your passage and look at verse, verse 42. So verse 42 says this, but only one thing is necessary for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. Well, then we have to look back up to our 39, right? What is the good part? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing his teaching. So what was this one thing? Jesus says only one thing is necessary. What is that one thing? What is the good part? Because he says one thing is necessary and Mary has the good part. What is that? It is, as I already said, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teaching. So as I said, we're going to come back to that again, but we're going to continue right now because we're just setting the stage for uh, our passage here. So see, Martha was distracted with meal preparations. So in verse 40, it says, but Martha, excuse me, but Martha was distracted. We immediately see a contrast in our text. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word, but Martha was distracted. So this word distracted, it means to be drawn away, to be over-occupied or to be too busy. So that describes Martha and even her attitude, as we will see, as, as she became frustrated that she didn't have help. Another commentator said this, Jesus' visit with Mary and Martha is an object lesson on the priority of responding to Jesus overly world, so responding to Jesus overly world, girls, I just don't know what's going on today, but I cannot talk. I am so sorry. (laughs) Okay, so Jesus over worldly concerns. So this priority basically is that 
she's prior uh, this this contrast that uh, Martha is prioritizing worldly things over Jesus. This visit is built around a contrast. So that's essentially what we're seeing is we're seeing the contrast, and you know this, between Mary and Martha as we go. So in contrast to Mary, who was worshiping at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word, eager to learn from him, Martha was drawn away. She was distracted from the one thing that was necessary because she was overly occupied with the meal preparations. The meal was temporal, fleeting, earthly, but Jesus was eternal and everlasting. She was preparing a meal that would sustain temporal, earthly life, but Jesus had the words of eternal life. Martha had lost sight of the one priority. She had lost sight of what was most important and was drawn away, giving her time and attention to what was comparatively unimportant. In this moment, Martha was functioning as an ungodly woman. Now, I don't think that this was necessarily the statement for Martha's whole life, that she was an ungodly woman, but at this, at this moment, in this situation, that's what we see, and that's what I want us to connect to. It's not that every moment of our lives are lived ungodly, but we have plenty of them, and we need to recognize the moments where we are ungodly, where we are drawn away from the one thing that is most important. And that's what happened here to Martha, because she misprioritized. So do you remember what Jerry Bridges wrote about ungodliness in your chapter this week? And I'm going to remind you, because I'm going to read what he said. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. That's what it is to be ungodly. It's to have other things that are taking precedence over our desire to know and love and pursue God. And if we aren't careful, the cares of this world, just the everyday responsibilities that we have, can easily take that position of top priority in our lives. And then what happens? We begin responding like Martha. By becoming distracted or drawn away by earthly cares, Martha demonstrated the characteristics of an ungodly person. Sadly, she lost sight of God's will and God's glory as she endeavored to serve Jesus Christ, who was her guest in her home. Okay, here's just a mind-blowing thing. Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, soon to be her savior that would take the wrath of God upon himself, was in her home and she was distracted. Girls, do you think you might be distracted sometimes? How easily we are distracted because we forget the Holy Spirit that resides in us. Here's the thing. She needed the teaching of God's word. She needed to hear, to think about the truths of God's word because that would be the only thing that would keep her from being distracted even in the presence of Jesus. Is that not an amazing thought? That is how important the word of God is to us. And so often we prioritize other things to a greater degree than we do knowing the word of God, studying the word of God, considering the word of God, meditating on it, filling our hearts and minds with it. Why? So that I might not sin against you, the psalmist said. And we'll see that because Martha in this situation did not do that, what happened? She did sin against her God. So again, another commentator, time with Jesus is more important than preparing an elaborate meal for him. Sometimes the activity associated with ministry 
can prevent us from more important endeavors, such as hearing God's words so that he can teach us. Service on the hand cannot supersede service with the ear, since the ear guides the heart and the hand. How important it is that we know, hear, study the word of God. So before we cast too much judgment on Martha, we need to evaluate our own hearts. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, included this small, only a few verses, this historical narrative as a lesson to us. He is warning us of how easily we are drawn away distracted by the cares of the world, how easily we lose sight of what is most important. If we are not careful, we can inadvertently live our lives in an ungodly manner simply because we are distracted by all the cares and attractions of the world. And actually, as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a poem from when I was a kid that I'm going to read to you. It's a little bit long, but I'm going to read it anyways. This, I'm sure that Several of you will probably be familiar with this. But this is one of those things. There are several um, little poems and songs that really made an impact in my heart as a, as a young girl. And this is one of those. And that's why I wanted to read it. It's called, If Jesus Came to Your House. If Jesus came to your house to spend a day or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you'd do. Oh, I know you'd give your nicest room to such an honored guest, and all the food you'd serve him would be the very best. And you would keep assuring him you're glad to have him there, and serving him in your home is joy beyond compare. But when you saw him coming, would you meet him at the door with arms outstretched and welcome to your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in? or hide some magazines and put the Bible where they'd been. In our culture, maybe it would be the computer or the iPad or the phone. Would you turn off the radio and hope he hadn't heard and wished you hadn't uttered that last loud hasty word? Would you hide your worldly music and put some hymn books out? Could you let Jesus walk right in or would you rush about? And I wonder, if the Savior spent a day or two with you, would you go right on doing the things you always do? Would you go right on saying the things you always say? Would life for you continue as it does from day to day? Would your family conversation keep up its usual pace? And would you find it hard each meal to say a table grace? Would you sing the songs you always sing and read the books you always read and let him know the things on which your mind and spirit feed? Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you plan to go? Or would you maybe change your plans for just a day or so? Would you be glad to have him meet your very closest friends? Or would you hope they'd stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever on and on? Or would you sigh with relief when at last he was gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus Christ in person came to spend some time with you. Such a great evaluation of our own hearts. How much do we love our Savior? And how much time do we spend worshiping him, coming to his word, communing with him? This poem has gone through my mind so many times over the course of my life. What would I do if Jesus came to spend time with me? And of course we know he is omnipresent, right? He resides right within me. It's just that I am so often distracted that I don't keep that in mind. Ungodliness always results in more sin. If we don't have a Godward focus and an intentional desire to live every day for the will of God and for the glory of God, we will respond to life's challenges and inconveniences in a sinful manner. One of the reasons why I chose this passage today is because I felt like it so beautifully brought together both of the chapters that we read this past week. The first one on ungodliness 
and the second one was on anxiety and frustration. But what do we see here? Because Martha was drawn away and distracted, not dependent on the Lord, ungodly in this situation, what ended up happening? She ended up entering into further sin, which was what? Anxiety. Yes, frustration. The love Mary had for the words of Jesus filled her mind with the right priority. She loved Jesus and wanted to hear his teaching. And it was his teaching that helped her to think rightly about life and to respond without sinfulness. And I just wanted to remind you of a couple of passages in the Psalms that talks about the value of God's word and the blessing that it is to us. And we forget this so often. And yet when we look at Mary, this is exactly what we see here. Psalm 1. So you get two of my more favorite psalms here. Psalm 1. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. His mind is continually filled with the truth of God's word day and night. He has a Godward focus toward every situation that comes into his life. This is what he's saying. And as we know, then he becomes like the tree whose roots grow deeply like being planted next to the river. Psalm 119, 1 through 3 says this, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Do these not so beautifully describe exactly our passage, the things that we're talking about? When we pursue God's word and it is a delight to us, we love it. What does it keep us from? Unrighteousness. This is our one priority. Regardless of who we are or what our lives look like, this must be the testimony of each of us. Martha, on the other hand, different from Mary, became distracted by all she had to do. Her distraction kept her from hearing Jesus' teaching, which led to ungodliness and then to more sinfulness. In that moment, she was not seeking Jesus with all her heart, and it resulted in unrighteousness. This is not small stuff that we're talking about, because we are talking about living lives that are set apart wholly unto God, that we might please Him in all we do. Is that your ambition, as Paul mentions in Corinthians? Is it your ambition to be pleasing to the Lord? If it is, then you must know his word to a greater degree and not just head knowledge. The reason why Mary sat at his feet was not just so that she could have head knowledge that would make her puffed up in her own imagination. She sat at the feet of Jesus to hear his teaching, to worship him, to obey him, to love him. It all goes together. So Roman numeral two Martha's complaint. Martha's misguided priorities finally caused her to lose the joy of serving. She became more flustered, agitated, and frustrated until finally she became angry. So A, on your outline, she accuses Jesus of not caring. Her sinful attitude resulted in an accusation against Jesus. So look down at your text again, because she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. So first she accuses Jesus of not caring, and then she expects him to respond to her bidding by correcting Mary. This should stop us in our tracks and make us a little bit horrified. I don't think I ever was really that horrified until I studied this passage this week. Because do you realize what she's doing? 
She is correcting the God of the universe and telling him he doesn't have it all under control because he's not doing it her way. But how often do we do the exact same thing? Lord, I am sure you don't know what you're doing. If you would only do it this way, it would all be fine. And our hearts become hard because we are drawn away from our one priority. What an absurd, unkind, and selfish statement that Martha made to accuse Jesus of not caring. Scripture is filled with the testimony of God's love. And the the scripture, she would have had some form of access to it because the Old Testament was complete at this point. Psalm 86.15, this is just one little sampling of this, says this, But you, O Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. The fact that Jesus is slow to anger was a very wonderful thing in Martha's case. He did not fly off the handle in his response to her. He was gracious and kind in his interaction with her. He demonstrated that he does care, as we'll see in a sudden. But remember, she had become distracted. Martha was distracted from the one thing. Listening to the teaching of Jesus, that's the one thing. Because of her distractedness, she lost sight of the truth of Scripture. She lost sight of the truth of Jesus' teaching. Do you recognize another motive in her accusation? She is trying to force Jesus' hand. Now, I want you to stop and think about this as I talk about it for a second because I really want you to evaluate your own heart in this because I think we all do this at times. And for other people that live with us when we do this, we make their lives very, very difficult. Her statement reflects manipulation, an effort to manipulate I'm going to accuse you of something untrue to get you to do what I want you to do. I don't believe, so me, I don't believe that Martha was intentionally doing this. I don't think she set out to manipulate or try and manipulate Jesus. I don't, I don't think that was her intent. But it was the overflow of the fact that she had lost that first priority, and she had been drawn away and distracted by all these other things. And so in that moment, her heart was being guided by her own sinful, selfish will. And so what happened was she was trying to do whatever she could do to get her own way. How often we do this to other people. We try and twist things or accuse them or however we're going to take the situation to force their hand to make them do whatever we want them to do to get whatever it is that we want. Now think about Mary, if Jesus had not been there to answer this for her. She would then be subjected to Martha's accusation. Imagine if this is how you respond to other people, how is it that that affects those around you? Because what is driving these statements here that she makes to Jesus? Selfishness, a desire to get her own way. And this is subtle. This is so subtle. But we need to evaluate our own motives all the time so that we are not seeking to move others and manipulate them to do our will and our bidding. So B, she accuses Mary of abandoning her. So if you look at your text again, she says, My sister has left me to do all the serving alone. So Martha's lack of prioritizing correctly then becomes the standard by which she expected her sister Mary to live. Did you catch that? So Martha has prioritized the meal and the preparations, which are wrong, 
but because she has prioritized them and this is what she desires most of all, she now expects Mary, who is doing the right thing, to leave the right thing and come with her to choose the lesser thing. You can see how deep this goes why we have to know the word of God because it's the only mirror that we have to look and go, I am ugly with sin and I need to change. Martha's desires, her preferences, her priorities were more important than anything else in that moment. She had ceased to care about Mary's needs. She had ceased to care about the importance of Jesus' words and she was more concerned about getting her own will than having an opportunity to worship and turned the entire focus of that situation on herself. Having wrong priorities removes Jesus from the throne of our lives and exalts self as the sovereign king and ruler. You see how serious this is. And I love that we're seeing it out of a real life story that actually happened because we can see ourselves so clearly in it. So see, she orders Jesus to exhort Mary. She then proceeds to tell Jesus what he needs to do to fix the situation. Because she has been self-consumed in that moment, she is not living according to the will of God. Instead, she is expressing to Jesus that her desires and her will are more important than his. What do we have? Pride. Pride. In this moment, she's exalting herself above Jesus and his will. She is not saying... Not my will be done, but yours. Instead, she's saying, my will be done and not yours. When we see what is going on here, we may need to find ourselves a little horrified with Martha's response. It all seems a little absurd. When we look at this, it would be so easy to go, I can't believe she would do that. But we have to look at it and see ourselves as Martha in this situation. We might ask, how could she lose focus so quickly? You may even think that this whole narrative has been blown way out of proportion, but the facts really are clear. When we become distracted, drawn away from that first priority, we fail to prioritize properly, which leads to ungodliness and ungodliness leads to further sin. You see the step. And it inevitably always ends up there unless we see it, recognize it, repent of it, and turn from it immediately. Jesus responds to Martha with gentle rebuke, stating the real issues. So Roman numeral three is Jesus' response. So A on your outline says, You are worried. Jesus proceeds to present correction to Martha's sinful perspective. With gentle, kind, and compassionate emotion, he replies to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. So we're going to stop and think about this word worried for just a second. He says, you are worried. And this is where we see the ungodliness and now it connects to the anxiety. He says, you are worried. Worried means to be anxious, to be troubled with cares. It comes from a word. So this is so interesting. And I just, this is why I love studying scripture because it's like this amazing picture and you put the puzzle pieces together and you see how full and beautiful it is. Okay, so just listen. Um, He says this. Uh, No, he doesn't say this. This is what the definition says. Notice the contrast. Oh, wait, I skipped to the next line. It comes from a word that means to divide or separate into parts, implying the idea of distraction. The Holy Spirit wrote his word. Martha has been distracted. And Jesus says, you are worried. Worried is 
that it encompasses that idea of distraction, all these different things. Notice the contrast that Jesus makes. Martha was worried compared to Mary who had chosen the one good thing that was necessary. Martha was anxious because her focus was divided and thus she was distracted from the one thing that was important. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exhorts his listeners not to worry. He lays out the things that cause worry, the things that cause worry, and I'm going to actually read these passages to you, but they're earthly. So it's your life, food, clothing, the future. And here's the interesting thing. So in our text where it says worry, that word, it is the exact same word used in Matthew. So we're going to look at a few verses here. So Matthew 6.25 says this, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not the life more than food and the body more than clothing? So here, Jesus is using the exact same word that he uses when he corrects Martha. Then in Matthew 6, 27, he says this, And who of you by being worried, same word, can add a single hour to his life? These are all verses that we're familiar with, but I want you to see how they all relate to our passage today. Matthew 6, 34, So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. But here's the thing. When we are distracted by the cares of the world, and sometimes Martha was doing a good thing, was she not? She was preparing a meal for her Lord. That's a good thing. But even in the good things we do, we can value them to the degree that they become a distraction and they lead us from that which is most important in our lives. Being a Christian is exhausting, is it not? We have to constantly be thinking through our own heart motives. Always. Because we so easily are distracted, drawn away from worship and love of our Savior. We are so often like Martha. We lose sight of our one priority, the one thing that is necessary. Our attention is divided by the cares of the world, and thus we are distracted from what matters most. We want to build our earthly empires. We prioritize money and things, success and accomplishment, even relationships and we work very hard to get them. And once we get them, we have to work hard to take care of them and to keep them. We waste time on the pursuit of hobbies and entertainment, vacations or temporal projects that don't matter in the eternal scope of life. We cannot allow them to keep us from the one thing. We must not allow them to distract us from the one thing. So. We are familiar with this next verse that I am going to present to you this morning. And again, this was really fun as I was studying. I actually had several verses that I was going to use right here, but in the end, I stripped it all down, and it's just this one, and I think you'll see why. First uh, Peter 5, 6, and 7. It says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So here is the thing. When we're talking about our words here, we have um, the noun form is what Jesus uses in our passage that we're studying today. It's the exact same word in its noun form in Matthew 6 that we just looked at. This is the same word used in this passage only in verb form, but the same word. So here's the thing. What we don't always realize is that we need to first humble ourselves before we can cast our anxieties onto the Lord. So there are two truths that I want you to see from this particular verse. So number one, because remember, we're talking about anxiety. We're talking about worry. And so often we can even think about that verse. And what we do is we just quote verse 7 by itself. 
casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so we think through, yes, this is what I need to be doing. I need to be casting my anxiety, my care upon the Lord because he cares for me. And so we come to him to do that. But unless we come with the right heart, there's no point and we continue to struggle and wrestle with our anxiety because verse 6 tells us the heart that we must come to the Lord when we cast these anxieties on him. And that is what he says. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So number one, humility is required for casting our anxiety on God. The reason Martha had become worried is because she had exalted herself above Jesus in her own mind. Her will was more important. Her desires were more important. She had become proud in this moment. Before we attempt to cast our cares on the Lord, we must first become humble. Anxiety comes from a lack of trust in God's goodness and sovereignty. It is often the response to our own lack of control and desire to be in control. The place to begin is with a humble heart that reflects the attitude of Mary, who was eager to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his words. If you wrestle with anxiety, it is absolutely critical that you can say, not my will be done, but yours, because that demonstrates a humble heart that is submissive to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when we get to that point, when the Lord, by his strength, through his Holy Spirit and the teaching of his word, brings us to that point where we wrestle, there is freedom. There is peace that Paul talks about in Philippians. Because we can rest in the fact that God is good and God is sovereign. But as long as we are trying to get our own way and to get God to give us our own way, our anxieties will persist because we have not humbled ourselves under his mighty hand. Anxiety and pride go hand in hand. If you want to overcome anxiety in your life, you need to begin by rooting out pride. So then the second truth that I want you to see is why we cast our anxiety on the Lord. So number two, we cast our anxiety on God because he cares for us. Okay, so just the similarities of, of cross-reference verses and all of that going on here was just so great this week. But Looking back at our passage, Martha, what did she accuse Jesus of? So look at verse 40. She says, Lord, do you not care? Okay, so remember what we just read in the other verse. Why do we cast our care or our anxieties upon the Lord? Because he cares for us. Well, in her own arrogance, she had determined that Jesus didn't care. So naturally, she's going to struggle to pour out her anxieties on him because she has determined he doesn't care. We aren't going to know God cares unless we are in his word. So if we aren't in his word, we will not believe he cares. When the difficulties, heartaches, pain, and trials of life come, we are often tempted to believe that God doesn't care. And I want to go to Psalm 119 and read three verses to you, verses that have been so incredibly helpful to me. Psalm 119.50, as it talks about the difficulties we have and as it compares to God's word. So Psalm 119.50, This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. What is the comfort? There's no anxiety here. There's comfort. In the midst of affliction, there is comfort and not anxiety. Why? Because your word has revived me. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. 
I don't like being afflicted. I don't know if any of you love it. But here's the benefit. It was good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I may learn your statutes that I may know your word. See, the trials and the difficulties and the heartaches that God brings into our lives are exactly what we need because they give us the opportunity to know his word. And as we know his word, we know that he cares. And because we know he cares, we cast our anxieties on him. And when we cast our anxieties on him, we are at peace. Do you see the full picture? Is it not so beautiful? Psalm 119.92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. I think Martha in this situation could resonate with these words. In that circumstance, God's word was not her delight. And so consequently, her afflictions overtook her. And she was frustrated and she was anxious. God's word has to be the delight of our lives because only then will we respond rightly in the afflictions. Will God strengthen us in our afflictions? When we allow ourselves to become distracted, to be led away from our one priority of hearing knowing and loving God's word, it will very likely lead to a distrust in God, questioning whether or not he cares. If you have ever walked through something difficult, you know the temptation, especially if it's been a long trial. You know the temptation that is right there, right on the edge of your thoughts. Do you care? Do you care? And the only thing that brings you off the precipice of that wrong thinking is the beautiful, wonderful word of God that says again and again and again, I do care. I love you. Remember Psalm 136? Your loving kindness is everlasting. Every single verse, that's how it finishes. Your loving kindness is everlasting. Only the truth of God's word reminds us of that. So be, Jesus says, you are bothered. So bothered means to be troubled in mind, disquieted, disturbed. So troubled, what does it mean to be troubled in mind? Because that's part of our definition of bothered. Well, here's Webster's 1828. It means to be agitated or annoyed. And what do we see with Martha? Surely she was agitated and annoyed. She was bothered, frustrated, even angry. And I thought it was interesting that Jerry Bridges paired anxiety and frustration together because that is precisely what we have going on in our passage here. Martha was anxious and annoyed or frustrated. She was distracted and anxious and wasn't able to change her situation, which resulted in frustration toward Mary and really eventually toward Jesus as well. And we need to truly guard our own hearts because when we do not submit to what God is doing in our lives, we begin to throw accusations around as well. And we accuse others because we always want to place blame somewhere, do we not? I don't like where I am. This is somebody's fault. It's not my fault because, of course, we don't want to take responsibility. It's not my fault, so it must be your fault or your fault. And then we go, okay, ultimately God is sovereign. This is his fault. And we throw accusations against our God. Pride, absolute pride. And we need to repent of that pride. So then, see, one thing is necessary, Jesus says. And of course, we already know what that one thing is. It was what Mary was doing. She was worshiping her Savior and listening to his word. David asked for one thing as well, to be able to worship. In Psalm 27, 4, David wrote this, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. This needs to be our hearts, the same as it was David's. But here I want you to think about something because he doesn't directly talk about the word here. He talks about worship. He talks about being in the temple of God because that's where he went to worship in that time. But think about what John says in John 4.24. He says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Where do we get the truth? We worship from the word of God. That's what guides us to be able to worship. This was David's one desire, to worship God according to the truth of his word. Paul had one surpassing desire, Philippians 3.8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them to be rubbish, so that I might gain Christ. The only way we can know Jesus Christ our Lord is through his word. <clears throat> Years, excuse me. Years ago, uh, I have a, well, I still have a very sweet friend. And actually, little connection here, she is now the mother-in-law of my son who lives in California. But we were over at her house, and this was when we had babies. And we were, we were talking about the Lord. This was kind of at the beginning of when I really started to dig into God's word. And so I was just starting to study and see the beauty of it just just a little bit. So we were talking about the word and, and she had just started recently doing that as well. And she made this comment to me as we were just standing in her kitchen talking, the kids are running around, her husbands were out in the garage talking or something. And she said, God's word is over there sitting on the table. And I just long to go pick it up and read it was the sincerest comment that she could have made. And it has stuck with me all these years because that was her heart. She's a busy mommy with three little kids, and yet her heart was always to go dig into the riches of God's word. Is that your testimony as well? When, when you are busy with the cares of the world, still with a Godward focus, are you longing for his word that you might study it, that you might know it? Are you complacent? Filling your time with frivolous things that have no eternal value. Girls, we get one shot at this life. How are we doing? Do we love his word like that? Do we love his word the way Mary did? Number one on your outline, Mary has chosen what is good. This is what Jesus is saying. Mary was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. This was what was good. As a result, she was not harried by the duties and responsibilities of life. She was not distracted and anxious. Her heart was at rest because she was practicing a godly dependence on her Savior. She was practicing the truths that we see in these next two verses I'm going to read. Colossians 3.16 let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God because her heart was filled with a love for Jesus and a desire to hear his teaching. It naturally overflowed in a thankfulness to him. And then 1 Peter 2.2 like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. This needs to be us. Do we long for the pure milk of the word? So how are you prioritizing your life? So just by way of application here, young mommies, are you training your children in such a way that they know you must have time in God's word every day to study it, to know it, to love it, and to obey it? It can be, it can, it can be easy to know that a schedule would be good when you have little children and to know that your home is a little bit chaotic, but what is the purpose of the organization? 
What is the purpose of the schedule? What is the purpose that you teach and train your children to be obedient so that they can sit still? It's so that you can know the word of God. You have time to be in it. Train them to sit still and allow you to have that time. They can be trained, some more easily than others, granted, I know, but they can be trained. Are you training them to do this so that you know the word so that you can train their little hearts? Older ladies, are you structuring your schedule, your work, or caring for elderly parents, helping with grandkids in such a way that you are taking daily time to study, to know, to love, and to obey God's word? When you order your schedule, what stands out is your greatest priority. Is the pursuit of knowing your Savior so superior to everything else that it is obvious to others who are watching you? Does your life reflect a godly dependence and trust in God that is free from worry and anxiety? So I hope today that as you go home, you will ponder and consider this beautiful passage of scripture and think about it a little bit more differently than you have before. That we might all be the Marys that sit worshiping our Lord hearing his word, loving his word, so that we will not be drawn away into ungodliness and sinful living. Let's pray.